Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Gardenmore Presbyterian Church. Keep up to date on our website, gardenmorechurch.org, or search for us on Facebook. There's a little phrase that we sometimes use in our everyday uh, talk and conversation, and it's the little phrase, what goes around comes around. And by it we mean that uh, we're kind of consoling ourselves, aren't we, by saying that, that what they have done is, is going to happen to them. Such as the career thief who comes home one night to find that his house has been burgled. What goes around comes around. Or the person who's never done uh, chattering and, 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 and gossiping and spreading rumors finds that, oh dear, uh, they're the one who's had a rumor spread about them happens quite often, and if truth be told, we tend to have mm, little sympathy for the person to whom it happens. But what goes around comes around is perhaps more than a, a, a human phrase of convenience. It has its roots in the truth of the Bible. Let me read a few verses from the Old Testament. Proverbs 26, 27, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. What goes around comes around. Psalm 7, 15 to 16. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. And Proverbs 28, verse 10. He who leads the upright along an evil path will fall into his own trap. And perhaps we see something of this as we come to chapter 42 of the book of Genesis. Pharaoh's dreams interpreted by Joseph about the the, the predicted plenty have turned now into the, the years of foretold famine. And that famine was not simply limited to Egypt. It was an international famine, as verse 5 tells us. And as there were known to be food supplies in Egypt, so people were traveling there with money to purchase necessary supplies. And some of those traveling to Egypt, hoping for food to preserve their lives, were the ten brothers of Joseph who had sold him to people traveling to Egypt in order to rid themselves of his. What goes around comes around. So as we come to the start of this, I suppose it's a family reunion, isn't it? Maybe not the one that we were likely to have at Christmas time, uh, a pleasant one, but, but this is a family reunion that's drawn out in the book of Genesis over the next four chapters. And in this chapter 42, I just want to draw your attention this morning to three things. And the first is the guilty consciences, the guilty consciences of these ten brothers of Joseph. Verse 1 of chapter 42 is a very enlightening little verse, and it kind of opens the door on what's going on in these men's hearts. It's the raged father, Jacob, who, who learns there's grain in neighboring Egypt. So he asks his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Why do you just keep looking at each other? 
You see, people who have secrets to hide very often do that when something triggers those hidden memories. There's grain in Egypt, the father said, and the eyes around the ten brothers go from one to the other. Egypt? Egypt was where those merchants were going to when we sold our brother to them all those years ago. Egypt? Go there to find food? I don't like it. That's what they must have thought as they furtively looked at each other across the room. The mere mention of Egypt seems to have begun to prick their corporate guilty consciences. Pricked again when, after arriving in Egypt and accused of being spies to the then unknown to them, Joseph, they make, verse 13, the very first mention of their brother in public in a very, very long time. Verse 13, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. They'd planned his death. They'd sold him like an animal. They'd concocted a lie to tell their father he was dead. And the irony here is that the one who is no more is actually standing in front of them listening to absolutely every single word that they say. But that's not all. Their consciences are roused still further when in verse 27, as they've returned home, they find this silver in each of their bags. They'd gone there to Egypt with silver to buy the grain. They were filled with grain. They get back, and, and there's silver still in their bags. And what's their response? Is it, oh, oh, there seems to have been a terrible mistake. No, it's not that. Is it, oh, well, that's nice. They haven't even charged us for the grain. They, they've, they've given us our money back. No, it's not. This time, as their guilty consciences are unsettled still further, look at what they put it down to. Verse 28, divine retribution. What is this that God has done to us? That's their first thought. God is at work here in the pricking of these men's consciences as 20 years of lies and deception is now beginning to be uncovered and 20 years of callous hardness of heart is now beginning to be softened. What a gracious God we have. And if this chapter teaches us anything, then surely one of the things it teaches is not to despise a guilty conscience. Do not despise a guilty conscience. Now, that's not the message we get from our society today. Far from it. We're told by psychologists and secular counselors today we're not to feel guilty about anything. Because guilt is something negative, and we need to release ourselves from the chains that feelings of guilt place upon us. That is utter nonsense. Feeling guilty about something that you have done that has been wrong, that has caused damage to others and grieved the Lord, can be the start of one of the most liberating and emancipating things in the world. Indeed, it can be eternally liberating. 
if it leads on from there to an outpouring of repentance and a restoration through Christ to God and indeed a restoration of relationships against whom we have offended. And that's exactly what's happening here to these ten brothers of Joseph. Now the full story is yet to be revealed. We'll see it in the chapters to come. But it begins here with their consciences being dealt with and the coming to the surface of deeply hidden sin that had lain there for a long time. Now I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want anyone to, to, to be thrown into some kind of unhealthy bout of neurosis at this point. But I wonder, is there anyone listening to this sermon and for you there's been some kind of cover-up in your life? And for a long time you've, you've harbored secrets that need to be brought out into the open before God? Have you consciously suppressed those feelings of guilt? And as you've done so, you've found no peace whatsoever in doing so. And you know deep in your heart that the only way to be released from your conscience that never stops speaking to you is to turn to the Lord and to take those steps to put right what you know to be wrong. It's not easy. You bet your life it isn't easy. You bet your life it isn't easy. It takes an enormous amount of courage to do that. But the rewards can be life-changing and God-honoring. Do not despise a guilty conscience in yourself or in someone else but rather see it as it was here, as a first step in God's means of bringing healing and peace to troubled lives and troubled hearts. That's the first thing then, guilty consciences. Second thing in this chapter is the merciful way in which Joseph deals with his brothers. And these brothers who have, who have treated him so harshly. That's why I read Psalm 103 verses 9 to 10 at the start. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Now, those verses are speaking about God, of course. They're speaking about his love and his patience and, and his long-suffering and his forgiveness and his mercy for sinners such as ourselves. If we're guilty before him, but he chooses to love us instead of punish us and treat us with grace when he would easily apply his justice. He can do that. Of course he can. But if as his followers we aspire to be godly, if we seek to be Christ-like every day in our lives, then that divine disposition that God has towards us is to be manifest in how we treat others around us. Certainly it was there in Joseph's life in terms of how he treated his brothers. It would have been perfectly acceptable for Joseph as the governor of the land with his position and given all that they had done to him. It would have been absolutely acceptable to have them locked up for the rest of their lives. That would be just. That would be fair. That is not what Joseph does. He does not treat them with justice. 
He treats them as he knows God has treated him with mercy. And isn't it fascinating to note the way in which Joseph's treatment of them is almost a mirror image of how he was treated by them? Think about it. Remember when Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers all those years ago, and they they noted the dreamer, here he comes. What was their phrase? He's here to spy on us. Go back to 37 and you'll see that. And what's Joseph accuse his brothers of here? Spying. There's the mirror. Joseph protested his innocence to his brothers. They say that in their guilty conscience. Uh, When he was in the depths of the pit, They'd ignored every word he was saying, pleading for his life. And so the ten brothers here protest their innocence to Joseph, and he stands before them, and he ignores their words. There's the mirror. And just as Joseph had had his freedom taken away, so the ten brothers have their freedoms taken away as Joseph puts them in prison. There's the mirror. And if they'd have had their heads screwed on, they'd have realized what Joseph was doing. So that this is precisely what they had done to him, and it was being done to them. Only, here's the difference. Far from Joseph doing this in some kind of vindictive way to get his own back and put his boot on their neck, Joseph is doing it so that light may dawn, so they'd come to see the gravity of their sin, confess it to God, and know the cleansing that had eluded them for the best part of two full decades. And doesn't what Joseph do provide for us a parallel to what God does for us when he confronts us with our sin? Here's Joseph who had sinned, who'd been sinned against by these men. He had the power to deal with them in perfect justice. Yet he extends mercy and gifts and grace far beyond what they could ever have deserved. Is God holding up a mirror to anybody today? Can you see your own sin? See the reality and the depth of your plight before a holy and a just God? And yet also see that the very one against whom you have sinned is the one who's calling you with open arms to know his mercy and his forgiveness. The amazing grace that does not treat us as our sins deserve. Folks, don't look into the mirror and walk away and do nothing. Don't see your predicament and ignore it. Do something about it. Do your business with God and be set free from your sin forever. Guilty consciences, Joseph's mercy. And then finally, we can see God working in all of this. And we'll see it in the weeks to come, I know. But what he's doing is he's working to draw these sinful men to himself through everything that happens. You know an interesting thing about the unfolding story of Joseph's brothers? If you go back to chapter 29, that's the last time the name of God is mentioned by them. It's not mentioned again by them until here in chapter 42. 
And the name of God is constantly on the lips of Joseph. He, he's a veritable motormouth about God while he's in Egypt. And yet the rest of his siblings, they don't even care to mention the name of the Lord. What's also interesting is the way in which the first mention of the name of God comes in the same chapter and in the same situation as when they first begin to become aware of their sin. And those two things so often go together. An awareness of the Lord dovetailed with an awareness of our sin against him. And if you think Joseph is showing great wisdom in the mercy that he's extending to his brothers so that they can see the sinfulness of their ways, look at how God superintends all of these events to bring these men to a realization of himself after years of silence and sin. First thing God does, he sends a famine. He brings the plight of hunger into the lives of those who live in the land of milk and honey. Just as in the parable of the prodigal son, who was only drawn back to his father when hunger and necessity precipitated it, so here God sends a famine in order to graciously draw these men back to himself. Folks, being in need, being in, in the plight of want of some kind or another, is never a pleasant thing to endure, but... It can be that which brings us to the point of stop, to stop relying on ourselves and to stop ignoring God. In Psalm 116, verse 67, King David writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Here were men afflicted, by this God-ordained famine, they are now astray, but God is drawing them to the place where they will come to obey his word. Second thing God sends is the pain of harsh treatment at the hands of Joseph. Joseph's very wise and very, very clued in here. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't do the full reveal uh, the instant he sees them because he knows that's not what these men need. It's been 20 long years. They need to process this in a particular way. And so what does he do? He accuses them of being spies. He, he makes them almost beg for their lives. He puts them in jail. He sends nine back home with specific instructions. You better bring Benjamin. And Simeon's in detention the whole while the other brothers are away. He provides them with grain. He gives them their silver back. And when they arrive back in Canaan, well, they have. They have plenty, but they know it's not enough. There's a seven-year famine they're going through. It, it ain't going to be sold by one visit to Egypt. It's a temporary solution. And all the brothers and Jacob and Joseph know they've got to go back. They've got to go back. What a rigorous lesson that God is teaching them here. But once again, it is ultimately for their redemption and restoration. And sometimes that happens to us. God can use the pain of our lives 
to make us see things in a way that we hadn't seen them before and realize that it's only when we turn to God in the deepest of our needs that we see him to be the supplier of all that we truly need. My mum was content whenever we were young to let my father take us to church. And he would go out on a Sunday morning with five youngsters uh, following along behind and it would be he who would take us to Sunday school and to worship. He saw the benefit of having us children engage in church life, hear the gospel, and learn the things of God. And he did that dutifully and diligently. It was only when my father died that that pain of loss that my mum felt spoke deeply into her grieving heart. It wasn't long after my father died that my mum started to go to church, that she came under the witness of a faithful lady who loved the Lord, who prayed for her and encouraged her. And she went to church and she heard the word and she heard the gospel. And it was about a year after my father died, she gave her life to the Lord. And from never coming to church, she never missed worshipping her Savior for the rest of the 29 years of her life. Sometimes it's the pain of life that God can use to bring us unto himself. And the third thing God does is he makes them return to their father for a second time without one of his sons. Jacob says that. They go back without one of their brothers, and this time, this time there's no way they can cover up uh, what's happened. They're forced to be honest about everything that's gone on. And what this does, did you notice they're forced to be honest and it brings to the surface something that had never been seen before. It brings to the surface this courage and this bravery from Reuben, verse 37. He puts himself forward and he says, I promise, I promise I will protect Benjamin on my return trip. Oh, there's a change taking place. Brothers used to be men who only looked out for their own interests. And they simply got rid of one of their brothers in order to do so. And now they're looking out for the welfare of one of their brothers. And even putting their own lives on the line to do so. And all of this, all of this is the result of God's sovereign ruling of all the events of their lives, and they don't even know it. That's the amazing thing. They're unconscious of it. Oh, they've begun to consider God, yes, but all they think about is his judgment, and they're expecting the worst. But God's working to bring restoration and redemption to these sinful men in the most wonderful outpouring of grace. Men who, from what we know of them thus far, most certainly do not deserve it. But that's grace, isn't it? That's exactly what biblical grace is. It's God's goodness, it's God's blessing poured out upon those who who are absolutely not worthy of it and never could be worthy of it. Jesus died while we were sinners. 
at enmity with the very one who created us and given us life. And in his sovereign purposes, he breaks into our lives to speak his word and draw us to himself. Now, the story's not over yet. Uh, we're, we're, we're only part of the way into this family reunion. There's so much more to come in the chapters that follow. God willing, we'll look at them in the weeks and months, probably, probably extend to, to, to way beyond Christmas. But for now, Joseph's plans are in operation, and more importantly, God's plans are in operation to reveal to these men and to everyone the power and the fullness and the amazing wonder of his workings of his gracious, forgiving, and reconciling love. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, so much that we've been able to glean from this passage, but so much that we haven't. We pray, Lord, you would continue to encourage us in this amazing story of of a man who, from his very early years to, to, to his death, speaks to us of of your love and grace, of your workings in people's lives, of your sovereignty and rule, not just over one man, but over the nations, and how you can superintend things so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So bless your word to us today, and God willing, in the weeks ahead, as we turn to this wonderful story of the life of Joseph. And all this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.